Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Murugan Vasudevan, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Vetis Foundation. They're based out of India. They're both a grant maker and an operating foundation. They're very big on taking an approach to philanthropy that requires you to have 100% head, 100% heart, bring your whole self to the conversation. They do unrestricted multi-year commitment grants, and we're going to be learning about the work they're doing on that front. They like to pilot, scale, institutionalize, and exit. So that's something we'll hear a little bit more about as well. And also how they go about trust-based philanthropy. Their take on it might be slightly different than what you might be expecting. So stay tuned for a really great conversation today. Murugan, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Alberto, great to see you again. Look forward to our conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're out there in India. I'm here in the UK today. We've overcome a few uh, hours time difference. Thank you for that. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about the Vetis Foundation? What's it all about? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, Vetis Foundation is a relatively new brand in the philanthropy sector. The founding trustees, Vikrant Bhargav and his family office and the leadership team have been quite actively involved in the sector for the last eight to 10 years. Uh, in fact, many ways, uh, have been influential in shaping the retail fundraising model in India, which is very successful today. On the institutional side, Alberto, the early years were, as with many foundations, uh, really about learning what works, understanding what resonates with you, uh, what we connect with, what are the different models, what models work in different contexts, and all of that. We even have, in fact, we continue to have a sandbox environment in a rural uh, district about three hours from Delhi, where we continue to do things, uh, do interesting experiments and kind of learn what works and what doesn't work. But over the last five years, we have to kind of bring it all together on the institutional side. Our efforts have crystallized around investing at the intersection of policy, technology, and impact. Mm -hmm. uh, That's, you know, in one sentence, that's who we are uh, today. How do we do that? We have kind of three pillars or work streams, if you can call it, around which we've organized ourselves. Uh, the first one is that we are a grant-making foundation. Uh, we run our grants through our social impact fund program. Uh, here we find and invest in social entrepreneurs, uh, primarily nonprofit NGOs for now, who have a problem-solving approach. And you know, we can talk more about how we identify and fund such organizations. We, we've established what we call a heart plus head approach to this. But for now, you know, just know that the Social Impact Fund does unrestricted grants to NGOs, roughly about $150,000 a year, multi-year commitment, providing scaffolding and support that an entrepreneur may need. So that's pillar one, right? Um, the second pillar, uh, which I'm, I'm personally quite excited about is, we're also an operating NGO. Uh, right, so we design and implement programs ourselves. Uh, what it really does, uh, other than the fact that it kind of makes us unique uh, in, in, in many ways, it really keeps us grounded and rooted to the realities of driving change in the field. Uh, we kind of really understand when you do things, you you understand it a lot better than when you have watched someone else do it. And so that's really what. It, so as we as I speak, we have uh, designed and we're implementing the rural livelihoods mission in three states in India, 
We're also working to set up a governance unit with the uh, center. Which are the which are the three states? We are in Haryana, Himachal, and um, we are starting up in Manipur, which is in the northeast. Uh, we have done this in Rajasthan and exited. So again, it's a it's a model that we like to follow: is pilot, scale, institutionalize, and exit. So through this work, Alberto, we reach about two hundred fifty thousand women. These are rural women who are. Um, who come together in self-help groups and are supposed to be able to tap into government funds that are made available for them to kind of build their livelihoods around, right? What we've observed uh, is that this program, if done right, this is part of the National Rural Livelihoods Mission, and each state has their own state rural livelihoods mission. And just by setting up the institutions, the capacity building, and the governance of this, what you know, or you can call it the plumbing of this program, alone has a significantly transformative impact. Right? There are a lot of organizations downstream which work on specific livelihoods. You know, uh, whatever the women might be involved in, uh, there uh, there are a lot of organizations that are downstream that also help in market linkages and and so many other aspects of it. But just focusing on the governance of these schemes can have a significant multiplier effect. And that's really where our focus uh, has been in, 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 in this. So today we're doing one, one of uh, these programs, which is the uh, State Rural Livelihood Mission. And hopefully in the future, we like to do more of these large scale missions and programs um, and focus only on the governance side of it. Right? So that's our, our second big pillar, if you will. The third pillar uh, where we organize ourselves is really uh, where we partner with governments on more strategic, longer-term programs uh, to drive evidence-based governance and building state capacity. Uh, a good example of this is our partnership with JPAL. Uh, where we can talk more about that. We also partnered with ID Insight, where we have set up uh, an outcome budgeting unit with uh, one of the states in India. Uh, so that's you know kind of a longer-term partnership with more policy, research, and data-driven. Uh, uh, organizations in partnership with government to kind of drive effective governance. So those are our three pillars. And, you know, all three are fairly synergistic, if you think about it, and covers the spectrum between like policy implementation and innovation. We find a gap during policy. We try to fund organizations that might fill that gap through our grants program. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of feeds itself. And if I really have to wrap it all up, right, it is our core belief is really about how do we solve problems? Right? How do we have a high bar for evidence of impact and push analytical and intellectual rigor around societal problem solving? In all of this, you know, some some of some some people may call this the venture mindset into philanthropy, but that's really what what it's all about. That's what is for you. Excellent. It's great that you're operating also a little bit in Haryana. I've been advising a philanthropist, and, and that's one of the states in northern India we're, we're working on to uh, to do some work when, on gross education. Ah, we're headquartered. We're headquartered. I mean, our, you know, we're headquartered in Mumbai, to be accurate. Uh, but our main office is in Haryana, in Gurgaon. Okay. Our focus would have been Haryana, Punjab, and Rajasthan. So uh, two, two states, actually, as common denominators there. One of, the, one of the phrases you used a little bit earlier, and I think this is going to be this is certainly something that I want to explore with you, is um, 
is this approach you said you know heart and head approach to philanthropy and um and i guess touching a little bit with uh with trust-based philanthropy what do you mean by by that what do you mean by heart and head approach <laughs> uh, we can go on for a long time Great. <laughs> talking about this <laughs> but uh it is the idea that you know we're in this to solve problems that need to be solved and when you put that hat on that you know i need to solve a problem obviously with philanthropy you're here because you have the heart right anybody who's either a philanthropist or working in the sector we're largely here because there are basic things that have been checked we have the heart we want to solve some problems but where we want to really emphasize is you have to bring and you know to add to build on that a little bit 100% heart and 100% head in my opinion you have no choice but to bring your whole self to it you've got to bring your heart to it and that's why you're in the sector whether you're a philanthropist or you know operating in the sector but you got to put your head to this because you're trying to solve a problem that's how problems get solved not just because i feel for a problem and i want to do what i can but you feel for the problem i want to do what i can and i want to see if i'm making an impact by measuring by pivoting by you know adopting to adapting to the environment changing and all of those things that we hear in the in the commercial side of the world we want to kind of bring that mindset not because you know we're analytically oriented or anything but it's just the right thing to do if you want to solve a problem and if someone's put their life committed their life to solving a difficult problem and if you're going to help them with funding i believe you are not really helping them if you also don't bring your head into the equation scaffold them support them if you put the vc parallel to this you know vcs don't just invest and forget about it they do everything they can to make the entrepreneur super successful right and and that involves a lot of head a lot of analytical information so for us um i'll start by saying that you know trust based means trust has to be earned from both parties right even before doing a half an hour podcast we exchanged notes you know learned a little bit about you you learned a little bit about me uh we talked to people who've talked to each other and we built trust even for a very small you know podcast now imagine you're going to be engaged as a philanthropist or as a foundation you're going to be engaged with an entrepreneur for years so how do you build trust there are simple ways in which you can kind of earn trust and build trust from a foundation side be transparent about your process be transparent about the status of where they are in the process be transparent about feedback mutual respect basic things that we have to do in any relationships right beyond all of these intangibles though there are tangible ways that you're building trust which is you know how are you evaluating how are you making the applicant apply are you valuing their time you know for example that is we don't have five sections and 55 questions right once we know that there is a high level alignment you have you have to answer five questions in 100 words or less roughly and these are simple questions that really kind of helps understand what they're doing and and then you continue to build that trust with the organization 
by making your process transparent, simple. Um, agreements are simple. Our agreements are two pages long. Even for you know, a multi-million dollar grant, it's two pages long and not written by a lawyer, right? Because that's, that's some tangible ways in which you can show trust. It's not just granted, they know what they're doing best, forget about it, don't question. It's actually, that's actually corrosive to the whole relationship, right? You really have to trust, but you have to build that trust by doing certain intangible things and certain tangible things. And, you know, really that's how it is. At the end of the day, all of our grants are unrestricted. That is how you show trust, right? If you really are trust-based giver, your grants have to be unrestricted. But in order to get there, you need to build that trust over a certain process and you can define that process up front and be transparent. So that's kind of how we define trust-based giving is do uh, unrestricted grants, set a very high bar for evidence of impact and drive that hard because that's really what's going to solve the problem. Your grants, what do they look like? Um, give us a little bit of insight, how many years they might be, what's the average size, what, what, are the, what do your grants look like? And you mentioned they're unrestricted. Yeah, they are unrestricted grants. Um, roughly, uh, an average grant would be about a crore or about hundred and today's money, $130,000 uh, uh, US dollars, um, multi-year commitment. Um, we try to uh, support the entrepreneur in their needs uh, beyond the grant uh, in whatever ways we, we can because of our relationships with organizations like JPAL and, and others. Uh, we can you know, also make those connections and provide other support that is required. And we try to stay active in, in the operations of the foundation and always make ourselves available. Uh, our grantees ping us at all times of the day, you know, saying, hey, can you connect me here or there? So that's really our, the, the structure of our grants, roughly about 131 crore a year, $130,000 today, uh, multi-year commitment. And how much are you granting out a year, would you say? Under the new Social Impact Fund program, we expect to grant about 10 to 15 grants a year. Uh, so that's it's about 15 crores roughly, right? It's roughly about $2 million. Uh, years for our grants program. Yeah. Now there, I mean, there's quite a few trends in philanthropy today, but two very pronounced ones. One is about the power dynamics or power imbalance, global north, global south. In your case, your foundation, the foundation itself is, it's it's based in India. It's funded by someone who is from India. You're India pretty much throughout. Uh, now, in terms of the other uh, trend that we see a lot is about trust-based philanthropy, and we've been touching on that a little bit. I, I think you have a more particular, more peculiar view of what trust-based philanthropy is for is for your foundation, for the Vetis Foundation. Yeah, um, I think you know this is a term that I'm hearing more frequently these days: uh, trust-based philanthropy. Uh, and uh, for for us, like I said, the ultimate measure of trust-based philanthropy is: Are you doing unrestricted grants? You can't talk trust-based philanthropy and then have a very only programmatic heads to be funded. To me, that shows you're not trusting the entrepreneur to do what is right for the organization. Perhaps you don't trust the governance of the organization, uh, the board members who are there. So one of the things that, which, that we do, Alberto, is besides the five questions and, and a short deck, 
uh, part of the process of evaluating and building trust with an organization is to say, hey, share me your last three board meeting minutes. Right? To me, nothing, you know, it's one of the most powerful things you could do to build, understand the quality of conversations that are being had at the executive and the, the governance level, the continuity of certain conversations, uh, the depth of conversations, and then, oh, by the way, you get all the other financial metrics too that you need to, you need to know without having to force organization to fill up their financial data in your format, right? So there are very simple and tangible things that a grant-making foundation can do to really build that trust, right? And when you do that, trust gets built, right? When you say, just share me your minutes, I'll take care of it. And then reaching out to a board member perhaps and say, tell me what happened in this meeting. Uh, you know, how, what do you think? That does multiple things. It saves the entrepreneur time. They don't have to fill up new spreadsheets after spreadsheets. It builds trust with them that they, you're actually talking to people who matter, who know about the organization and not making judgments by looking at answers on a sheet. So for us, that's what trust space means. The biggest thing that we put on all, on top of them, this is where we get into perhaps a little bit of a friction with the existing definition or more, more commonly used definition is we have a high bar for evidence, right? So you've got to have a high bar for evidence. That's not a bad thing. In fact, that is the very core of building the trust is you me together, let's solve this problem. Tell me how you're solving the problem. Show me what the data is showing. No matter what you're doing, there is data, right? And you, if you are in it to solve the problem, you will be motivated to get to the bottom of the data. Whether you are left-brained or right-brained, it doesn't matter. As an entrepreneur, you will want to find out, am I solving this problem? And that's where we put a lot of emphasis on um, and ask a lot of questions, not from the point of exclusion. And we've talked about this a lot in our internal board meetings. It's not to exclude organizations. It's to be more inclusive in what they need to be thinking about, right? If someone is not, we recently met an entrepreneur who's been at it for 15 years, 2005, so 17 years. And he's, you know, one of the largest organizations in the sector that they're operating in, but really hasn't spent time or money in building that body of evidence, right? Because largely the donors have been programmatic, right? You say, I want you to operate in these states and these districts and these many number of schools, and that's it, right? So there isn't funds available. So sometimes it's a reflection of the nature and the, the environment in which the entrepreneurs operated. So for us to go and say, do you have data? And he says, no, I don't have data. He says, are you interested in doing a longitudinal study? Or are you interested in doing some, you know, quick, you know, controlled trials? And if the answer is yes, we're happy, right? We say, okay, fine. You know, we, we think you're in good position and we trust you and, you know, put some more time and money and effort and people behind this because it's going to help you, right? So that's really where we come from. When we say we come, you know, ask for very high bar for evidence, it's not to exclude organizations that don't have that. It's really to drive the conversation of evidence and the need for evidence in the sector. I understand. And with the evidence and, you know, you, the 
the high bar, as you mentioned, the high bar that you, you put there in terms of uh, requirements for evidence, do you find, uh, anecdotally speaking, that it's an instance of you approach an organization or they approach you and you realize that maybe they don't have the mechanisms in place to give you the evidence you're looking for, or uh, or maybe they do have them, but it's not aligned with what you think, or, or or is it conceivably that you find organizations and you ask them what you know what evidence gathering exercises do you do, and perhaps those align already with with what you would expect? What are what are you finding? I, I, that's the first part of the question. Second part is what about interventions where maybe there isn't, by the very nature of what that intervention is, there isn't necessarily that evidence. It requires a little bit of a of a leap of faith. And I'm referring to a previous episode I had with Lawrence Haddad from the, the from GAIN, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, where he said, look, sometimes the evidence just isn't there because it's a moving target and we're, 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 we're trying new things. Sometimes we need that a bit of that healthy risk appetite yeah. for a philanthropist and philanthropy in general to come on board and give us a hand. A bit of a long-winded question, or two-sided yeah, as no. well, but... It's... Uh... It's a, it's a brilliant question and it uh, continues to, these are things that we think about too, right? Uh, let me t- answer the second one and maybe through that, get to the first one. Ask, seeking for evidence of impact is just part of the culture, right? It's the fabric of the organization. In any organization, if you're doing midday meals, for example, right? Uh, the impact, in fact, the largest or, you know, organization that does midday meals in India, there has been a 20-year study, right? 20 years later, the study shows that children of the kids who are in the midday meals program, so the next generation, are healthier than those kids who are not in the midday meal program in similar, you know, circumstances. So how would, so if you dial back the clock 20 years and say, how would, we have approached this situation saying, where's the evidence of impact? Because it's a long, you know, you've got to have that leap of faith. The answers that will resonate with us would be, here's what we're doing. Here's the product, so to speak. Here are the measures that we're looking for. Here are things that would come out every month. Here are things that would come out every quarter. Here are things that would come out once a year. And oh, by the way, we're doing this 20-year study that when you answer a question like that, you have the answer. You have that culture of measuring. You have the culture of pivoting. You, ha- you have built that into the fabric of the organization. With no, no matter what you're doing, you could be in midday meals or you could be in curriculum development in schools or you could be in apprenticeship program. It is really about a culture of being analytical-minded. And that's the 100% head piece that we talk about, Right coming into how you design your programs and what you look for as outcomes, as outputs, short-term, mid-term, and long-term, right? You're absolutely right. You cannot, any, you know, philanthropy has to be the highest risk capital one deploys because you're not expecting anything back in terms of return on that capital. Hence, you have to have leap of faith. You have to fund initiatives that you don't know whether it will succeed or not. So if someone says, I will only fund you if you have proven, that's a different model and that's fine. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying, are you building that culture of looking for evidence of impact, looking for 
a problem-solving mindset. When you're, you're out there solving a problem, no matter what their problems is, mental health or whatever it is, you're looking for a solution. And the only way you will get there is if you build that culture of data collection and you know, all of the other tools that are there today into the day-to-day operations. And that's really what we look for, right? So what we're finding, back to your first question, many organizations um, do collect data, but the next important step of, you know, kind of closing the loop, right? Is this solving the problem that I set out to solve is something where they need to have, you know, invest a lot more. And again, investments are not going there because philanthropists, uh, philanthropy isn't funding for most parts, right? If you're only going to fund programmatic and in, in India, especially with uh, a majority of money in the sector coming from corporate uh, due to regulatory requirements, there is a big dearth of, uh, you know, unrestricted capital. And so that's really, you know, you need that money. Now, your background, you came from Cisco, if I'm not mistaken. You have a corporate background, right? Yes, I was at Cisco for 20 years. Right. And I know in India, as you mentioned, the, the corporate side these days, because of the regulatory framework, corporations need to get involved with, um, with funding causes and so forth. Uh, had you been at Cisco today and you're getting involved in, in a certain, let's say, corporate philanthropy, I would imagine that that the the way we perceive trust based philanthropy wouldn't necessarily be embraced by a corporate, or, or am I wrong? And the, and the reason I say that is because it just strikes it strikes me as you, you want to see what's that spreadsheet telling me, right? What's this division doing? What's that? What are those funds doing? And somebody reporting to somebody. And what's your take from an Indian context? Yeah, no, I ironically the questions that you just asked, you know, what's that spreadsheet telling me? What's it? That is. That is exactly what corporates do in their day-to-day life. So if they just bring that thinking into their CSR investments or CSR grants and ask those questions, and the next step, this is where the gap is, not just ask those questions, because what happens is you ask the questions and you beat them up, beat them up, and that's not enough. And support them and invest in organizations to say, okay, run a rapid control trial and here's $100,000 for that or take 10% off the grant money and use it for you know, data, uh, you know, data-driven or evidence-driven uh, decision-making or whatever. That's where the, 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 the leap of faith you know, is not yet happening for the large part. And to me, it always didn't make sense because corporates live and die on data. Right, you know, on data and partnerships. You know, most successful corporations are those that build strong partnerships, collaborations. You know, are analytically oriented, are pivoted multiple times in their life cycle, constantly measure their success. There are metrics to measure. You know, profitability, revenue, and all those things. And so, you just have to bring that mindset to social investment. So we did that fairly well at Cisco. There are ways in which you could make provisions for unrestricted capital within a restricted regulatory environment. It's doable. It just needs a little bit more thought, a little more investment, more more time. There are corporations which actually invest in creating it. We had a team of six, seven people in Cisco uh, working on this, right? I mean, what happens when you have a regulatory requirement, in most cases, corporations just do it as a side 
you know, moonlighting for the site leader or the marketing person or the, you know, um, someone else's day job, and then it's added on to that. That is where the problem hap- you know, happens is because you now have $3 billion from corporate India that is coming into the sector annually uh, and growing every year. It has a huge opportunity to uh, drive a little bit more of this evidence-based thinking and invest more, not just drive, but invest in creating that body of evidence. And I think it'll happen. I think it's a matter of time. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. A uh, lot more companies are investing, are staffing their CSR teams better than you know what was three to five years ago. Uh, so I think even in corporate India, um, this just aligns with the way corporates think. So I, I'm pretty sure that this will happen. For you personally, that transition from the corporate world into the philanthropy space, yeah, was it what you was it what you expected? Are you looking back and saying, "Oh, the grass was greener back there"? <laughs> well, um, as they say, it's always easy to connect the dots looking backwards uh, and kind of build a beautiful narrative that shows that you know I knew exactly what I was doing. But you know, as with most people, uh, you know, where we are today, Alberto, is a result of a series of random events, conversations, and decisions that are completely sometimes made irrationally, uh, like our move back to India, which what is kind of, uh, I would probably peg the start of my journey in impact to my move back to India from the US. That move itself was completely illogical across any measure uh, due to various reasons. We can have a chat offline, but you know, you put that in the destiny column, right? Um, but un- until I moved back, I was obviously oblivious to the existence of the sector. And so, um, but you know, subliminally, your family and other circumstances, there was probably something bubbling under the surface, right? And all it took, in my case, literally, was a one-line email uh, that said, "Can you come and talk to me tomorrow morning at ten in a three-minute conversation?" That really changed the trajectory of my career. And then, of course, over the lot, you know, between 2010 and 15, it was, really came together. A lot of friends and family along the way who shaped my learnings, cultivated my desire to be part of the sector, and uh, as I was saying earlier, the sector is really in the middle of an inflection point in India between policy changes, the rapid digitization, uh, the emergence of this young entrepreneurial talent, uh, which really wants to solve difficult problems and the availability of capital, more philanthropic capital uh, coming into, the, you know, into India uh, within, from a domestic point of view. It's really a thriving place for anyone. If you're early in career, mid-career, senior, retired, still looking for exciting gigs, this sector is really thriving right now. And so um, I'm very excited uh, being part of the sector now for seven years. And um, it's, it's, it's a great place to be. Absolutely. Here, here. Well, I'm glad you're, I says you're, uh, um, you're feeling optimistic about the future. The future is looking bright for philanthropy in India. The future is looking bright for India. Um, and I think philanthropy will have a, a role to play, uh, hopefully, to kind of solve some of the problems and uh, even catapult us into a post-poverty world, um, not just India, right? I mean, uh, that's that would be the uh, something to look forward to. Eh? Yeah, well, that's good. The po- post-poverty world, um, one of our mutual acquaintances, Atul Satija <laughs> from the Nudge Institute, I think he the, the theme of, of that podcast episode that we did a little while back was about 
aspiring to have a, a poverty-free India within our lifetimes. And I hope the post-poverty uh, narrative becomes a reality. Before we wrap up, I always love asking for a key takeaway. What's, what's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? 100% heart, 100% head. Bring your whole self to the sector. Our world will be better for it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Perfect. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for making the time and sharing your insight with us. Thank you, Albert. It was a fantastic conversation. I enjoyed it. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Murugan Vasudevan, Chief Executive Officer of the Vetis Foundation. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. I thoroughly enjoyed producing this show for you. I hope you enjoyed it, found it informative, and hopefully been enthused to take some positive action around you. Join us next week. I very much look forward to catching up with you then.